Hi, Podcat. I'm Peter. Hi, I'm Mika. And this is the second uh, DTM podcast. Uh, this is basically the second part of an interview uh, with Case Dorst. First part was on reflective practice. And if you haven't yet listened to that, I'd recommend going back and listening to that before you listen to this one. This is a, a quite a short interview that we did on a subject called co-evolution, but it's distinct from reflective practice. So we thought we'd have it as a separate podcast. What we're going to have is a, a, a about 10 minute interview with um, Case Dorst, carrying on from before. Uh, and then another discussion about the, some of the things that he talks about uh, and some of the theories that he mentions. So let's hear the interview. That's very clear. Um, so we've been talking about uh, reflective practice and about framing. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about is the idea of co-evolution of problem and solution. So there is a very well-known journal in, of, in our field, Design Studies, and one of the most downloaded papers in that journal has been, for many years, the paper you wrote together with uh, Nigel Cross about creativity in the design process and the co-evolution of problem and solution. What does that mean, co-evolution of problem and solution? Yeah, so the, the history of the, that paper came out of um, the work I'd done studying these expert designers. And I sort of realized that um, what they're doing is really interesting. Let's say in the classic problem-solving way of looking at design, you start with a design brief and then you do all of your design work and you get to a solution and hey, you're finished. But if you look into those design processes, yes, you start with a design brief, and you come to a solution, but you realize that it's not quite the right solution and you actually need to go back and look at the problem slightly differently uh, because you've hit a dead end and then you go and create another solution. And you So the problem and the solution are both moving in design, mm -hmm. which is different from um, what often happens in engineering. In engineering, people tend to work in a fairly rational problem solving fairly linear way uh, but in design the problem and solution are both in play they can both change i think that's a key aspect of what design can bring to other fields at the moment mm -hmm. because we're in a lot of fields we are very very stuck we're not solving our problems very well at all and you can say well that means that we need to hire designers to make more solutions mm -hmm. or you can say well we need to actually hire designers to help us through the possibilities that there are also look back at the problem and see mm -hmm. how that shifts and changes. Mm -hmm. So that's a key aspect of what designers do. And then sort of studying it in detail, you realize that so an idea is not a new solution. Mm -hmm. An idea is actually a kind of bridge, a link between a certain view of the problem and a solution. Mm -hmm. Because design is very propositional. You're going, okay, if this is the problem, mm -hmm. then that could be a good solution. That doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's change how I look at the problem a little bit. Hey, wait a minute, there's a solution there. Yeah. And that's the, the, the feeling of sort of the ad adrenaline rush that you get when you have an idea is this kind of feeling of click. Something clicks together. And what clicks together is actually a view of the problem and a possible solution. And the bridge between those is what we call an idea. Ah, so it's the fit between the problem and the solution. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I always find diff difficult when it comes to co-evolution, I, I, I recognize that in all the 
you know, design projects I've done and I've studied as well, is that co-evolution makes uh, planning so difficult because we tend to plan a project as well. First, we do our problem exploration and then we create a problem definition and then we start doing our brainstorm and generating ideas and then we compare whatever we've designed to our problem definition. How do we work with that as designers? Uh, the, the problem that design has is that it sort of it has to try and fit somehow within a world that thinks in a very linear way yeah. about problem solving, about what projects are. Yeah. And uh, but design, what design actually brings is this kind of non-linearity. It's yeah. these learning th processes. It's it's the co-evolution bit. So that's one of the reasons that often design departments in big firms within R&D departments are very closed off. So you can't enter. And officially that is because we have to protect the IP and all the great ideas that are developed there. In reality, it's also to protect those designers from interference by people from the organization itself. Because if people come in in a phase where you are still working with your propositions going yeah. if this yeah. I mean it will look very strange to them why don't you guys solve this problem well we're actually in a design process which is completely different um, so there's a lot of misunderstanding around design and that's where design tends to sort of shut itself off a little bit or organize workshops or organize sort of it's, it, it's very hard for design to work out there in the world sometimes it needs to be a little bit of a bubble there's a great example years ago where um, there was actually the design of the new Dutch passport and um, designers were working on this and they're trying to find new technologies that would make it harder to fake passports. And they were basically just going around with some technical experiments and graphic experiments to make it really hard to fake. The problem was that it took them a while to get somewhere and then uh, one of the testing institutes leaked that the test had failed of the new passport. Well, it was actually one of, I don't know how many tests that they were doing to get to a good solution. That became questions in parliament and the minister had to show up in parliament and defend why the project for the new passport was taking so long, blah, blah, blah. And it basically wiped out all of the design freedom for the designers. So they basically had to go with the thing they had then, which was still in development, and start just producing that because it was not acceptable to keep experimenting. And that was not a very good design for the new passport. So then the whole project had failed. And you think that's what happens with these kind of things. Also, I was a designer at Volvo before. And in Volvo, they realized that, okay, um, You've got the design department, which makes all these wonderful sketches and stuff. And then you've got the production, which is the big machine. And whatever the design department comes with, comes up with, uh, the people in production always start redesigning that a little bit to make it easier to produce, which upsets the designers because they see the quality of their design go down or yeah. what they see as the quality of their design. And the production people are go, well, we can't help it. We need to make this damn thing. And what mm. you've sketched for us is just not going to work. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that, okay, let's avoid that because that's a big interface. There's a lot of time that's being lost in that space. 
maybe you do lose design quality in that space. So let, let's try and repair that by having people from production also involved in the early design phases because they've got all of this knowledge about what works and what doesn't work in production and they can then inject that into these early design phases. That didn't quite work because in these early design phases you're going, oh, it could be like this, it could be like that. There's always several possibilities and maybe this is cool and maybe it can blah, blah, blah. And the people from production were basically just sitting there with their arms crossed going, what should I make? <laughs> They weren't interested in yeah. sort of exploring things or in several solutions or whatever. They were just, what do I need to make? Tell me what I need to make and I can tell you whether it's good or not. So that's a huge cultural difference between those. And that's within the same firm. Mm -hmm. People that have sort of co collaborated for a long time, but they're still there in completely different cultures. So the idea of having a design space or giving design space to play around with, it could be like this, it could be like that. It's actually is quite important and some firms are very good in creating that design space. Other firms are really, really bad at it. And that means that whatever you can do as a designer is very, very limited. You don't mm. have much freedom then. Mm. So what you're explaining is basically that the way that designers work through this goal evolution of problem and solution, this, this kind of learning process, is quite different from how people in other professions uh, work and that that sometimes uh, clashes and in your work also in my work where we apply design mm -hmm. in kind of the the social field and also working with public sector and uh, social sector organizations uh, uh, governments who also tend to work in the, those those linear ways do we also how do we deal with that is is this creation of design space the the best strategy to deal with that on the one hand yes on the other hand no because when you create a bubble where design sits yeah. you also create an interface yeah and that interface can be so hard yeah. to get through that whatever you create in your bubble is just not going to happen yeah. so you the more transparent you can be the better it is yeah what i often find is that what i try to do with people from non-design disciplines that are going to be taking the ideas forward or that we're going to working with later on. I do invite them into these design processes, but uh, we have this rule here, which is basically hats off. Yeah. So you're not there as the representative for marketing. You're just here as somebody with ideas because as a designing framing co-evolution, it's not strange. It's just that in a lot of professions, people have more or less, they get scared of it and they've organized it out. And they pretend to be much more linear and much more rational than they actually are. Mm -hmm. So creating a space which has a good design culture in a way that is approachable for other people mm -hmm. is, is really the way to go. Because you do need them to be involved. You also need their expertise. I mean, in that sense, Volvo was right in trying to get those people involved. It's just if you just get them in as they are, yeah. that doesn't work. So you have to explain to them very carefully what you do. I mean, a lot of what you, do, what do designers do in practice is about teaching people things. It's about explaining things. It's about explaining about different ways of looking. So make it as transparent as you can, uh, because that's where you're not going to create that awful interface that you otherwise have to get around. Yeah, that's very clear. Which means that design problems become more complex. Mm -hmm. And the question is, 
does the traditional design way of working actually work for these very complex problems? And I think that's a real thing we have to ask ourselves because you see that often very complex problems are now given to the engineers and they solve it in a technical way. But I think all these technical all these complex problems also have a human side so you'd wish for design to be able to engage with them but there seems to be a bit of a ceiling in our way of working about the complexity that we can actually deal with that we can actually achieve on the other hand if you look at some of the biggest creative processes that are happening at the moment they're in animation oh yeah if you look at sort of making a feature length animated film that's thousands of people in a creative process yeah. and they've done a really really good job in organizing creativity on that scale it's even bigger than what i've seen in volvo in the, in the car industry but then we haven't even looked at that because we've always said well animation it's a bit of entertainment blah, blah, blah. but mm -hmm. it's technology development in there there's so much that is happening and it turns out they have a very layered way of working. So they've got different layers of architecture because the last thing you want is somebody to just sit behind a screen and start clicking and make a funny figure or something. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't work. <laughs> so that's very, very sophisticated things that have already been developed up in practice that we just don't know about. Mm. Another thing that I find is that, um, that comes mostly from interviewing architects, is that these famous architects, owners of these famous big architecture firms, Norman Foster, Santiago Calatrava, Frank Gehry, those kind of people. They have a very interesting role in those firms that, that we haven't quite understood yet. Because the last thing that they should do is get directly involved in projects. Because when the big boss says something, everybody else stops thinking. That's not a good plan. So they need to empower their people to do a kind of projects that fit within what the firm is doing. And it's not management, as you would learn in an MBA. It is actually, it is about the content, but they're kind of curators of knowledge in the firm. And it turns out that they've got really interesting practices to make that happen. And they go across many different things. They, they go up to, let's say, what kind of pictures do you have on the wall in your design firm? Well, those are basically the projects that you still want to think about because they signify something, they're important, but they're also challenging. Uh, why do you do exhibitions? Why do you do um, competitions? That's because that gives you a certain freedom to actually think more broadly than you could normally do within your projects. Mm -hmm. And they're very much made for the people of the firm themselves to keep challenging yourself, to keep developing up new ways of working, new ways of thinking. So that's a whole different level of designing. To me, those people are still designing, but yep. it's just they're designing yeah. the environment in which their type of design can happen. And often what you see in design schools, the first thing you tell students is design happens in projects. And projects go from a brief to a solution. Well, there's layers to that. There's yeah. other layers of designing that sit around that. And if you look at design firms that I know in Holland and in other places, there's some firms that are that I would say are quite weak because they are just projects, people running from project to project and making money and having fun, etc., etc. But it doesn't seem to be a build-up of knowledge on top of that. There doesn't seem to be a sophistication of way of working, etc. So they just keep doing what they do within yeah. their projects. They miss 
what to me is a whole other level of design that is also very, very important. And that in the end gives a firm its profile, it gives yeah. its longevity, and it gives it its also intellectually interesting thing. Well, still a lot of work to do for us. Yep. Uh, thank you so much, Case. That was uh, very uh, informative. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, so that was the part of the interview that I did with Case, which was on co-evolution of problem and solution. I think this is a really, really interesting and important topic for designers to understand. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it's so important that I developed a course a couple of years ago uh, on design for public uh, servants. And one of the subjects in the co course, I ended up calling co-evolution of problem and solution, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which the public servants found a little bit uh, uh, difficult to understand. But I think uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about this theory is that when we talk about um, experiments in design and prototypes, we often tend to think of these prototypes as just testing a certain solution so we can improve that solution. Whilst if we use this theory of co-evolution of problem and solution, we see that actually this experiment uh, or this prototype is not so much about the solution, but really about the connected problem or the way we frame the problem. So often through these experiments, we learn a lot about the problem, not just about the solution. Yeah, I think uh, in the interview, case, case says design is propositional. Yes. And I think what he means by that is that what designers are very good at is exploring problems through suggesting solutions. Yes. So you suggest a solution in order to find out what, what you think the problem is. Yeah. And I think that he went on to talk there about that that's a very distinctive way of working and that doesn't fit easily with other people's ways of working, particularly yeah. what he, 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 he described as linear ways of work in organizations too, because yeah, an organization yeah, yeah. Is, likes to know when things are going to happen. They know, yeah, yeah. they want to know what the process is. That's what a design thinking brings. It's the, yeah. the, the connection between a solution and a problem, I think. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of people in other disciplines think, yeah. think that there are problems that need solutions. And I think that there's a phrase which is, is you know, an engineer comes to a designer and sort of says, well, we can build any car that you want, but we don't yeah. know which car to build. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. what the designer yeah. brings is that idea that you can work on a problem but in a kind of solution-focused way. The other, the other thing I quite liked in, in, in Casey's interview was this idea of what value designers bring. Yeah. It's sort of clear that other people think they bring this value, but they don't really understand how they get that value yeah. or how yeah. to invest in that value yeah. or even you know, where to put the designers. Yes. So there's, yeah. there's an element of you know, if, a, if a, an organization values design, it has to protect the designers yes. yeah. and, that, and that creating that space or that bubble that, that Case sort of said. Yeah. I think that's, that's a real challenge, I think, is to kind of it, actually account for what designing is yes. to other people. Yeah, I mean, it's quite paradoxical because on the one hand, we're saying like, oh, nobody understands us, <laughs> you know. And then on the other hand, we're saying, well, you know, we need to be protected. So, you know, just put us in this, you know, what case calls design space. But then we're essentially creating a bubble that you know, only creates more distance between designers and other professions. So, you know, the question is, do we really need like a separate space because then the framing is almost like okay we have to teach people that's literally what Kay is saying we have to teach people what design is 
But I think it's also a bit problematic because if we're just thinking about, oh, no one understands us. We just have to teach others. We're not really thinking about others at all. I think, you know, we should also maybe ask engineers or any other kind of profession we're working with, how do you work? And, you know, how is uh, what you're doing different from what we are doing? And what would you like to learn from us? Mm. So create more of a conversation rather than saying, you know, I just need to teach you how I am thinking. I, I think one of the things that um, when you when you think about acquiring experience or what e- yeah. expertise brings is that you you just have a natural repertoire of solutions to draw on. Yeah. So and you begin to recognize certain types of problem. And I think that it's not just designers that do this, but as people get more experienced yes. in, in their day to day life or whatever professions that they choose, they begin to recognize, OK, this is a particular problem solution. Maybe this yeah. this this is the right solution yeah. to go with. So they naturally become, as you acquire experience, you naturally yeah. become a bit more solution focused. And there was a very famous study, actually, by someone called Jane Dark, who, oh, who yeah. wrote this paper called The Primary Generator. Yes. And she did a study of five or 10 architects, yeah. experienced architects. And she took them to an architectural site and got them to talk about, you know, how they would tackle the problem. And, and, yeah. and she sort of said very quickly, they sort of see, okay, the light's over here, the elevation is over here. They, they quickly map the problem yeah. landscape and then yeah. they come up with a solution. Here's yeah. the solution. You know, we should put this over here and that over here. And that forms the basis of, of their solution. So they're very quickly thinking of a solution in yeah. order to tackle the problem and yeah. take it further. I'd like to add to that because I, I know um, uh, Jane Dark's uh, paper and the idea of the primary generator. Indeed, that's one of the drivers is, is kind of this expertise. Like designers, they use these primary generators, or some people call it principles, based on all the, the, the projects they've done before. They have this expertise. But they also found that they use um, research. So, uh, you know, in those studies, um, people don't talk about all the research that designers nowadays do. They really do go out and explore and use their uh, ethnography or context mapping or whatever uh, techniques they use. They use solution-driven design, so the provocative pro- prototype. Um, some of them, they use kind of what I call uh, reflection tools uh, in their design process to really, for example, all kinds of, of, of maps that they use in their process. Um, so there's there's kind of different ways um, uh, in, a, in a design process, that, uh, kind of different types of inputs that designers can use um, in that problem framing uh, process. Um, and I think the expertise and you know, the use of solutions are really quite quite key things and quite different from what other people might use in their yeah, practice. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it was good. I think, again, that the interview covered a lot of things that will be familiar to a lot of people about, you know, struggling with problems and thinking about solutions and how they fit, fit one, one another. Yeah. But as with the first podcast and as with um, the podcast to come, we write some show notes which give you the all the references, the things that we talk about that we think might be of further interest to you. So if you go and have a look, if you want to follow up any of the ideas um, that we've been talking about, have a look at the show notes. Okay, that's uh, that's it for the second podcast. Thanks yeah. very much, Mika. Thanks, Peter. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm.